Welcome to episode 52 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent writing crime fiction inspired by actual FBI cases. In this episode, we speak with Myron Fuller. Myron served in the FBI for 30 years. He is interviewed about his case agent and undercover role in the case codenamed Abscam, originally initiated to investigate and penetrate white-collar crime and organized crime targets in the New York area. Specifically, it was begun as an undercover operation to infiltrate the conspiracy of members of organized crime to purchase a mortgage company for fraudulent and criminal purposes. The sophisticated abscam scenario included a fictitious, wealthy Lebanese businessman and a $7 million bank account. Myron Fuller and his undercover partner, Agent John House, represented that they had worked for a consortium of foreign banks and the Arab businessman who wanted to funnel millions of Middle East money into ventures in the United States. The scenario, with the cooperation of conman Mel Weinberg, allowed for the successful conviction of organized crime figures, conmen, and ultimately corrupt politicians. Myron Fuller retired as the special agent in charge of the Honolulu Division. When it was suggested that I reach out to Myron to talk with him about Abscam, I was still under the impression that Abscan had always been a public corruption case. So when I spoke with Myron, I was surprised to find out that the original targets were the uh, New York mob families. So we'll get into that interview in just a bit. But before we do, I just want you to know that Pay to Play, my crime novel about a female FBI agent investigating corruption in the Philadelphia strip club industry continues to do well. I have 45 reviews and I want you to know that I've been told, don't know if this is true, that when you get to 50 reviews on Amazon, some type of algorithm kicks in and they promote the book more. So if you've read the book and you enjoyed it, I really would appreciate it if you would go over to Amazon and give it a review. Here are three that came in since the last time we spoke. This first one is from Pat Brogan. And Pat says, what a great story. Jerry's experience as an FBI agent gave her rich fodder for the novel. I kept wondering how much was based on real cases. She writes so well that I didn't want to put the book down. At first, I thought that Jerry was a man because of the great insight displayed into the male behavior. Then I read the back cover and saw her photo. I could not believe how great a writer she is for her first novel. Can't wait for the next. The next review was from Mr. McKinney, who says, Great book from a true professional and expert. I've been a fan of Jerry's podcast for several months. Her wonderful interviews and enthusiasm for crime fiction and nonfiction forced me to buy her book. I have not been disappointed. Pay to Play was a wonderful book that delivered on exactly what you want from a crime fiction novel. I anxiously await the next book and more episodes from her podcast. And then the last one that uh, I received since we last spoke is from T. Smith. And T. Smith says... I enjoyed the author's podcast, loved her book. Fantastic. I don't get a lot of time to read, and so I was always anxious to get back to the story at the end of my day. Great writing, character, and plot development. Jerry Williams is an up-and-coming fiction crime writer without a doubt. I will buy her future titles for sure. Wow. Thank you, Pat. Mr. McKinney and T. Smith. I want to thank everyone who has gone out and picked up a copy of Pay to Play. And I especially want to thank those of you who have given it such fantastic reviews. Good reviews help other readers find good books. So I really appreciate that. 
I do have a great crime novel to recommend to you today, and I'll talk to you more about it after the interview. Now here's the show. I want to welcome my guest, Myron Fuller. Hi, Myron. Hi, Jerry. So glad to have you with us today. I spent most of my career working economic crime. And so to talk to somebody who was at the very forefront of the FBI's work with advanced fee schemes and and other types of cons is absolutely fascinating. I was very proud to be a part of a group of people that 30, 40 years ago saw that this was a major crime problem that needed to be addressed. All right, so we're talking back in 1976 and 1977. At that time, who was working these big international financial fraud-type cases? I don't think uh, there was much going on in the FBI with that. The U.S. Customs Agency was working that, and that's I was introduced to a U.S. Customs agent by another by a senior agent on our squad there in New York, and he was the one who kind of you know gave us information and had a, had an informant who was. Um, monitoring these type of um, criminal activities. So that was my entree into the globalization of uh, con schemes. And could you tell us a little bit more about that global con game? Yeah, it was when the con men who have uh, expertise in economic crimes with banks and uh, transfers and insurance companies that saw an opportunity to use offshore banks setting up really banks in other parts of of uh, the world, mostly in offshore, so they can't be reached, but as uh, in Europe as well, where they could have someone to back them up. And what type of uh, cons were they doing? You know, how were they getting people's money, and who were those victims? Well, as, uh, as you know, uh, con men flourish when the economy is bad. And the 70s, uh, starting in the early 70s and going forward, uh, the economy was pretty bad, and con men saw this as an opportunity. In fact, there was an international con uh, gathering uh, in Dallas in 1976, in July of 1976, where they traded ideas on how to how to pull these scams off uh, because people needed money, and they couldn't get it through uh, what was traditionally the way to do it, go to a bank or a savings alone that had shut down pretty much on giving those loans. So they were they were desperate. And this is what con men seek is desperation. So when they had this big meeting, did authorities know about it? I mean, were we watching the place? Were we finding out, you know, what they were doing? Or was all of this done in the shadows without anybody knowing that these con men were getting together? I don't think anybody in law enforcement knew anything about this because I don't think they were paying attention to these people. So I learned about it when we started monitoring Fred Pro and Cy Guthrie. When you say we, exactly who is conducting this investigation of white-collar crime criminals? That's a very good question because there is a much broader explanation to what we saw and found out with the Fred Pro and Cy Guthrie uh, operation. That was actually provided to us in New York by Operation Fountain Pen, or Opfo Pen as it's codenamed, which was put together by uh, James Weddick and uh, Jack Brenton out of the Indianapolis Division to target, to penetrate white-collar crime con men. That's interesting because I actually interviewed Jim Weddick about Operation Fountain Pen in Episode 6. So if anybody wants to look at the connection between Abscan and Operation Fountain Pen, they can go back and listen to that episode. Uh, the FBI had only been in the business of investigating under the White Collar Crime Program for only a couple of years. I think it was 1976 when it initiated that the FBI would be investigating White Collar Crime. So Jim Wettick and Jack Brennan wasted no time in going undercover to penetrate the international con men that were uh, a threat to economic, the financial institutions in the United States. So. That's how we got going, and they brought Phil Kitzer to New York. Phil Kitzer introduced Jack Brennan and, and Jim Wettick to Fred Pro and Cy Guthrie, and then came over to our office there in New York, in New York City, and said, "Here, this is something you can go with." That's how that got together and got started. So that means that Afghan was actually a 
spinoff of this Operation Fountain Pen. Absolutely. Epscan would have never occurred had Operation Fountain Pen had not come to New York City. We would have not known about Fred Pro. We would have not known about Mel Weinberg. We would have not known about Cy Guthrie. It was uh, a direct spinoff into the first case was called the Brookhaven Servicing Corporation, but that was later uh, changed to code name of Amsterdam. Okay, so while Jim Weddick and Jack Brennan were off with Phil Kitzer, that's when you and your partner began looking at Fred Pro and Cy Guthrie. Cy Guthrie was a major player with organized crime as well as con schemes. He was a graduate of St. Mary's in San Antonio, Texas, and he was a very smart guy. Uh, he knew how to bank, and he told me several times. He said, you know, organized crime needs me. And I said, why? He says, because they can't go into a bank and talk turkey with them. He says, I can't. He knew that in order to hide the transaction as much as possible, they'd have to go set up a bank in the Caribbean or overseas somewhere. So this is what they talked about at this big meeting in, in, in Dallas. So organized crime families were using these con men as their money launderers? Well, they were using them as a front, as an expertise front. They they wanted to get involved. There were three things that organized crime wanted back then that they didn't have. One was a bank. Another was an insurance company. And the third was contracts with the federal government. Organized crime wanted contracts with the federal government? Yes. Cy Guthrie started out in the agricultural uh, area. Back then, um, there was a, the federal government was controlling the price of milk for example, and they would uh, buy you out. They would pay you not to milk your cows. So Cy Guthrie in Louisiana went in and bought some land there in Louisiana and set up a sham you know, milk production uh, program, a situation where actually he had people that would loan him, you know, lease him cows so he could say that they were his cows. And then you go to the federal government and say, I have all these cows. Uh, I understand that you were paying us, you know, not not, not to milk them and sign a contract, and that's what they did. So he got money for not melting cows that he right. didn't that have. Really that's right. That's a good con. They, another thing they were about to get involved in in New York City was the Lucchese crime family was going to be the uh, straw front. Or if you don't know if you, you don't recall this, maybe, but Jimmy Carter was going to rebuild the Bronx. And, you know, it was so it was so dilapidated and it was really gone. You know, so he wanted to rebuild it as a showing that, you know, here, here's what I can do as president. I can actually rebuild a city and make it work. Well, he didn't get it through, but it was all set up. The Lucchese family had already set up about five or ten straw contractors. And they were going to control them all. Wow. So organized crime, you know, had their hands in various businesses and they wanted to branch out and have their hands and fingers and toes and elbows in every business that they could possibly get a piece of. Right. And one of the first things that Pro did when he got to New York, he was uh, asked by organized crime to front for him to take over uh, Iverson Cycle Company, which made bicycles for Sears at the time. They were in trouble, and the organized crime wanted to buy it. They couldn't do it, so they went to Pro, and he helped them set up buying it out, and it was about a $40 million fraud. So tell us a little bit more about Fred Pro. So he is one of these con men that have been involved in international schemes. Yeah, Fred Fred was very uh, experienced in contracts. He had been had a legitimate job with the Pennsylvania Transit um, Company, Pennsylvania Transit, I guess it's called, the, tra- the, the uh, transportation company of Pennsylvania, which I think was focused mostly in uh, – and Philadelphia with the subways and the trains all there. That's where he learned his expertise in contracts. Yes, and then he went on to work in contracts with General Electric and one other major energy and defense contractor in, uh, out in Long Island. So why would he want to get involved with organized crime? Well, because he wanted to get involved in business, period, and he did on his own. I think it was kind of a natural meeting of the minds when you have a con man and an organized crime figure both kind of looking at the same things and they cross each other and organized crime wanted needed him for its expertise and he needed organized crime to protect them for protection okay so if he pulled a con on somebody that wasn't happy about it then you know he didn't have to worry because 
organized crime was had his back. Right. And Fred Pro became one of your informants or cooperating witnesses. Uh, he did eventually after he, uh, he he actually was threatened with they were going to throw him out the window there in Manhattan. But um, he called me one night and said he had to get out of town and that he would call me sometime later. <laughs> so he he left and went underground for for a year, but eventually he got back in 79 and, and we started putting these cases away. Yeah, you knew me because we had conducted the Title III on his uh, apartment building. We also had a microphone in his office and we ran that for about a month and then we conducted a um, search warrant on his place. So he knew that, he knew what we had. He knew that his all of his, you know, his documents and everything of fraud were going to be reviewed. So he knew it was up. So he he pretty much immediately started talking about co- cooperating with us and setting up a sting operation in his apartment there in Manhattan. Directed organized crime and some of the con men that he already had a relationship with. By the way, he was going to be the original source in the ad scam operation. But because he left town and Mel didn't go to jail, it's kind of like a, well, if we don't have this one, we've got that one. Mel turned out to be really good, of course, but um, we thought Mel was going to jail. And then we thought Fred would work with us, but then he he got caught up owing too many people too much money, and we had to get out of town. But um, no, Fred was uh, was one of those, I think, opportunities that you, you know, you, you watch TV and think, man, I wish I could have somebody who could be in this part of the world that would be my eyes and ears and help me help me uh, get in between organized crime and legitimate business. And this is what Fred offered to us. We knew we had a good case. We knew we had an opportunity that at least no one in New York had ever done. The organized crime uh, program in New York was set up by, by squad. There were about seven or eight squads, and there was one squad for each of the five family, and I think Gambino actually had two squads. They didn't have anything going like this at all. All they had going was, was the illegal gambling and uh, hijack, truck hijacking. Those were the two things that kept them busy. Was it difficult for you to convince headquarters to take on a case like this? Not as much as I thought. You know, I was fortunate that uh, there was a, uh, a supervisor down there, maybe it was a unit chief, I believe, down in the old um, economic, I don't know what they even called it back then. It was the unit that handled 87 violations, which, as you know, was the number of classifications that were under that one class, uh, 187 number. When I went down to headquarters and started talking to him, he was a very experienced guy, and he understood. He had served in New York, so he knew he knew that we had a good thing, and he was the one. He didn't, uh, he didn't put any stops on us at all. He just said, well, first of all, Yes, I'll support you. And secondly, uh, you need to go over to the Department of Justice and run this by them so that you know they can approve your Title III and all of that. So it wasn't as difficult as I thought it would be. Hmm. Interesting. Through this case, you're able to develop Fred Pro as your cooperator. Now he has to get out of town because his life is being threatened. And that's when you decide to switch to Mel Weinberg. Tell us a little bit more about Mel Weinberg. Uh, Mel Weinberg came to our attention uh, through the Title III. We had many, many conversations uh, of him talking to Fred Pro, and it was mainly about, although he had done some other deals using some of these other schemes, but the main one that he was interested in at that time because Joe Trocchio was interested, and Joe Trocchio and Mel were very close. Uh, the conversation that we picked up on was the uh, Joe Trocchio's uh, uh, efforts to try to purchase a a mortgage company out there in Long Island called Brookhaven Servicing Corporation. It, was, it handled about $150 million volume of mortgages. For him, an organized crime, that would have been a, a great <laughs> vehicle for them to have um, a lot of money uh, that to, on the, you know uh, available to them at all times. For example, people who pay their mortgages early before they are due, all that money becomes float float money, and at any given time, there was around $10 million float money available for whatever they wanted to use it for. Chase Manhattan Bank owned Brookhaven Servicing Corporation. Okay. That's the mortgage company. Yeah, and they wanted to sell it. They wanted to sell that, and they also had owned a, um, 
Community National Bank in Brooklyn that they wanted to sell as well, and we were looking, we, we were talking about buying that one as well. But Brookhaven was was the was the was the hot one. So you have these con men who are not just doing deals for themselves, but they're also in partnership with organized crime. Tell us now how Abscam came about, because initially it was not supposed to be a public corruption case. Correct. We were looking at all the people, organized crime and con men that we saw gathering around Fred Pro. And Mel Weinberg, by the way, had quite a deep relationship with organized crime himself. Although he he was pretty smart about it, he didn't get too deep with them that he couldn't get out. But he had friendship with some more than than we thought at first. But as time went on, we realized that he really did have a deep relationship. But he didn't really want to go after organized crime that much. Although he wanted to help us uh, get in between organized crime and the purchase of this uh, mortgage company, so he he was all in for that. I'd never worked undercover before, so I really didn't plan on it, but uh, we decided to open a separate case from the Fred Pro case. We opened a separate case on the Brookhaven Servicing Corporation, and we put the title in the title, uh, Joe Trochio, Fred Pro, and Richard Sparrow, who was the mob attorney. Joe Trochio was a well-known organized crime figure in the uh, Palumbo family. He uh, had beaten a couple of raps. Uh, one of them was... Uh, uh, he was um, charged with stealing, along with some other guys, $20, $30 million in treasury bills. There was a lot of that going on out of Wall Street. But three of the people who were going to testify against him were killed. So, yeah, There goes the case. Yeah, he was pretty uh, pretty deep, and he was also very close to some of the people who pulled off the uh, Lufthansa heist that you might have read about or heard about out in Long Island. You know the movie uh, uh, The Goodfellas? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, a lot of those people that were knocked off, remember how they started knocking everybody off toward the end? Yes. Uh, those were real knockoffs, and those were friends of Joe Trocal. I mean, that's how that's how close he was to those people. When you say that Mel Weinberg didn't necessarily want to go after organized crime, was that because he was truly friends with them or yeah. because he knew <laughs> that's not a good thing to do? Yeah, he was walking a fine line. He he was willing to help us get Joe Trocchio. I think he saw Joe as uh, kind of limping on one leg, and he's getting pretty old, and maybe, you know, he he would be able to work around that. But he had some other organized crime friends that he was not going to go after. He didn't He didn't lead, He didn't didn't point us in those directions at all. But we didn't, we didn't argue with that because we were happy that he was there to help us um, make the case. Was the initial sting to have an Arab... Now, everybody says it was an Arab sheik, but who right. exactly was this person supposed to be? And, and who designed that aspect of the case? Okay. Well, we got lucky, I guess. You know, and you know how that works. When the Fred Pro case, we, we finally uh, did a search warrant and brought in all of his documents that filled up an entire room. Was able to get John House, who was an agent that worked, because he was the one who introduced me to the U.S. Customs guy. <laughs> so... He was good. He was he was about uh, 15 years my senior or so, and uh, he was my he was my mentor. Okay, so he was he was helping me on this, and he worked undercover with me with Mel uh, with against Tokyo over there for a while. I told him one day, I said, "Look, I'm way over my head on this. You know, I can't handle all this." And he said, "Well, let me go to the let me go with you to the supervisor and see if we can get some help." So we did. We got five additional agents to work. Uh, some of them were on the squad, some of them were not. But we got five additional agents to work full time, just on the Fred Pro case. So, mm. so now I had some time. You know, I had some time I could work with Mel. One of the agents that was helping was a guy named Charlie Mandigo. Charlie Mandigo was a fairly new agent, but he was working hard. And one of the leads he had was with a, a vice president at Chase Manhattan Bank. So he came back. After that meeting with the guy, he said, you know, he says, you know, you should talk to this guy because he's the former CIA or Army Intelligence or whatever, but he has a lot of connections uh, in Africa and the Middle East. And I said, okay. He knew that we were already talking about a scenario. Now, Fred Pro had actually had tried to use the the Arab prop, and, and Mel had actually tried to use the Arab prop, too. So it was not a... 
it was not an unknown prop that con men were trying to use. They saw what I saw, and I remember reading the New York Times, one of the Sunday edition of New York Times, had a big essay on how the Arabs were buying up America in the sense that they were buying up banks, they were buying up treasury notes, they were buying golf courses, you know, they were buying a lot of stuff, kind of like the Japanese did a few years later. So it was kind of the picture was coming and focused that the Arabs were coming to America, and the con men saw this, this right away as a prop. Fred Pro saw it, Mel saw it. So it was kind of like this is where we're going with this. See, I went over and talked to this banker, and I said, look, I can't tell you the details of what we're doing, but here's what we have. You know, we have an opportunity. He said, do you mind if I help you? I said, of course not. He said, I will help you. I will give you a portfolio on a real Arab. He's from uh, United Arab Emirates, Russell came up, which is one of the, I think, the seven United Arab Emirates over there. And he said, um, I can give you a copy of his passport. I can give you a copy of other things about him. And he says, we'll set up a portfolio in the bank here for you. He will be your guy. He will be the person that's backing you with his money. I said, but does this person really exist? He said, yes, but he said, don't worry. <laughs> he said, don't worry about it. We're not going to get him involved. He will never know. We did find out later there really was a person with the same name. He gave me all these documents, and he sent a, he had a, a letter from an ambassador in Lebanon. And mm -hmm. the letter was dated April 1st uh, for some kind of April foolishness, I guess. But uh, in 1976, but he was later assassinated. So Mike Elvey knew that, that he would never come back to haunt us because he'd been assassinated. So we could use his name. But it was simply a letter to me from him congratulating me on being connected, becoming connected with uh, Kambir Abdul-Rahman. So that's, that's kind of a, you know, the background of how this got going that we thought, you know, we could use the Arab as a backstop, as a back, you know, as a prop. From there on, you know, of course, it, that's what we did, and it went a lot further than we thought. But that was the beginning of it. We decided uh, we had to get somebody who could speak the language. <laughs> we came up with a uh, Lebanese guy in Cleveland who had no, you know, he didn't have any connection with any of the investigations other than he was Arabic and could speak the speak the language. And he was used very sparingly. You know, this guy was really not, you know, the, the aura of the Arab was what was important, not the Arab himself. Right. Yeah, just saying that there there was this Arab guy, you yeah. didn't need to, to pull him out like a dog and pony show, I guess. Now, when you say that you worked undercover, what was your role? Were you playing a con man or a victim or? I was playing a dirty a dirty banker who had been fired from Chase Manhattan Bank for stealing money, but they didn't want to prosecute me for they didn't want the attention. But, uh, yeah, I, I was playing the person who worked directly for the Arab, and was uh, controlling on where he would spend his money. When we talk about Abscam, most people associate Abscam with a movie that came out just a few years back, and that's American Hustle. Right. So as we move on with this story, how much was portrayed correctly in American Hustle? And American Hustle is a big-time movie with Bradley Cooper, and with Kristen Bale, and I understand that you were uh, consulted. You actually sat down with Kristen Bale, and, and tell, tell us about that. Yeah, I spent uh, a whole weekend with Kristen Bale in, uh, uh, in, uh, in his home in uh, Beverly Hills. And, but, but Mel was there, too. I mean, my purpose of being there was for two things. One is to keep Mel on track and also to provide uh, background. Parts of the movie that were were real in in the uh, sense of what really what we really did was the banking, you know, the bank at Chase Manhattan Bank. Without the bank prop, I don't think we would have gotten the first base. Because we would use the reference, you know, hey, we have money. I was talking to the headquarters. I said, you know, we're going to need, I'm going to need money to put in my undercover account at Chase Manhattan Bank. And he said, well, how much do you need? I said, well, the, they, they're telling us that they need $2.2 million of upfront money just to open negotiations to purchase the bank, the mortgage company, rather. And I said, but we probably need more than that, maybe throw in another million just to make it look good. He said, okay, so $3.2 I said, yeah. He said, just 
He said, I'll, I'll support you on that. So they did. They sent up to $3.2 million and went into my undercover name account at Chase Manhattan Bank, and it was managed by another person in the bank who knew, knew nothing about, you know, the FBI being involved at all. In this movie, Kristen Bell plays a role that is supposed to be Mel Weinberg. Correct. Tell me about the first time that you actually started talking about this Arab, and what was he? He was a he was a construction. He had, he had a construction business in uh, the Middle East, and he had contracts, you know, throughout the Middle East. He was making money, not directly from oil, but from the building that was, you know, there was a massive building going on in the Middle East at that time. All right, so you decided to set up this scam, not using him, but using his persona to move you forward. Right, correct. And our, our ploy was that we have the backing. We, you know, we can help you buy this mortgage company. And Richard Sparrow, who was the attorney representing the... Uh, the mob and representing Tropium was the spokesperson, and he and I went over and talked, sat down with the attorneys for Chase Manhattan Bank. At that time, Chase Manhattan Bank was using the most uh, prestigious law firm in Manhattan at the time. So we sat down in, uh, in the law firm offices and talked about what we wanted to do, and they wanted to know where the money is coming from, and I told them. John House was a very articulate, you know, speaking about it, and he had more experience than I did. But he was also playing an undercover role. Yeah, yeah. John House, myself, his name was Hans Pfizer, and my name was Myron Wacker. So I think that's when it occurred to me. It kind of hit me right when as we were walking out down the street, and I remember talking to John, and I said, John, you realize what we just did? <laughs> he said, Yeah. <laughs> I said, we just talked to the attorneys who, you know, for Chase Manhattan Bank, who wanted to sell a mortgage company. Well, that's what we wanted to focus on. And we, we negotiated with them, and all they wanted to know was how are you going to pay for it. And we told them, and uh, we walked out, and they said, okay, well, then uh, the next step would be you guys, uh, you know, send us uh, your request on how you're going to do this, and, and we'll go from there. John and I both knew we we couldn't go forward, but we took it far enough that now we had a conspiracy, and Southern District of New York actually prosecuted this case as a RICO conspiracy, the first known, ever known that anyone prosecuted a case for RICO conspiracy, but that's what they prosecuted it under, and they were all convicted. Uh, this was one of the, it was one of the, the first case that we made with the Abscadden scenario, but it was the last one that was prosecuted because we couldn't prosecute it until all the other cases were adjudicated. And and the scheme was that you were undercover but acting as middlemen to purchase the mortgage company for organized crime. Exactly. Yeah. So then how did Abscam turn to public corruption? How did that happen? Was that intentional, or was that just next thing you knew, some greedy politician had his hands up? Uh, it was it was it was kind of a little accidental. There's another term for that, but I can't remember what it is. But Mel was friends with a con man who was in with some uh, New Jersey politicians, and one of them was the mayor of Camden. He knew him, and he knew that the mayor of Camden was looking for some some financial support do things as mayors, whatever mayors do. And he said, you know, he, you know, he, he told Mel, he said, you know, this mayor is dirty. You know, he'll, he'll take a bribe. So Mel called me and said, it was a Saturday. I was at home in New Jersey. We lived in uh, Glen Rock, New Jersey. And he called me and he says, you know, I have this opportunity to meet with this con man about the mayor, uh, Mayor uh, Angelo Arigetti. And that's what American Hustle is all about, this one deal. He said, I, I, I have an opportunity to meet this con man who says the mayor is dirty. Should I meet with him? And I said, absolutely, go meet with him. He says, can you come with me? And I said, no. I said, I'm, you go ahead and meet with him and get back to me. And he did. And he came back to me and he says, uh, he's going to introduce, he said, he'll introduce us to Angelo Arigetti, the mayor of Camden. I said, okay. <laughs> so that was the door opening to uh, political figures and corruption and politics. That's how it got going. So how many politicians ended up being taken down by this case? 
Uh, there were six congressmen, including the senator of New Jersey, Harrison Williams. There was the Angelo Argetti. There was a couple of councilmen there in Philadelphia. There was the New Jersey Gaming Commissioner. They just set up gambling in southern New Jersey back then. Uh, he was also convicted. And there was also a regional director for INS, Immigration National Service. Wow. He was also, I think he was like a grade 15 or something uh, in the federal government. About 10 major, major political figures that went down. And what was the connection to this Arab businessman for all of them? What was he supposed to do for them? Why were they willing to take a bribe to allow him to do whatever it was he wanted to do? What the Arab scenario offered was money, and it also offered opportunities. If I want to do business, for example, Harrison Williams wanted to help develop a mining operation down in southern New Jersey. So that was an opportunity for the Arab to say, okay, I'll help you on your mine, give you some money to help you develop this mine. If you will help me, help me develop business in America. You know, you help me use your, you use your power as senator to help the Arab uh, gain a foothold in business in the United States. So that was the quid pro quo. At this point in time, I, I worked undercover on the Brookhaven matter, and I worked undercover on six other cases that were prosecuted. But when it came to the uh, getting into the politicians, I had to make a I had to make a big decision. I also had the pro case in front of me. I had all these cases that I had to see, you know, through, see through, and get prosecuted. So. I had to make a decision to either move to Long Island from New Jersey. I was driving every day from my house in northern New Jersey to Mel's place out in Long Island. It was about a, almost 100 miles, you know, one way. I was just burning up, burning down. And it was either move to Long Island and become totally involved and become the case agent, undercover agent, rather, on all of these. But I thought... Well, I knew I knew where we were. We were already at Mayor Arquette, and we were already in touch with uh, Harrison Williams people. But to me, it was like, okay, I can do I can do that, but then I have to give up all these other things that I have going. So I chose. Plus, there was one other aspect to this. I had been told that I was up for promotion to maybe get a, a supervisor's desk there in Manhattan, in New York. And now I was pushing like 10 years in the bureau. So I was ready to make some changes if, if the opportunity was there. So I gave up my undercover role in the politicians part of it. But I maintained my undercover role in other cases. And that's when they brought in Tony Amoroso, who had been in New York and was now uh, assigned to one of the units down at headquarters. And they brought him back up to New York to work as, as the undercover agent for against the whatever politicians that they might encounter. Okay, so at that point, the case kind of split. So yeah. let's talk about the successes that you had with the part that you remained with, the ones having to do directly with the con men and organized crime. What type of success did you see in those areas? I made uh, five, I think, five different purchases of stolen securities from organized crime figures. And I had undercover meetings with an uh, individual with the name of Sonny Santini. Sonny Santini was, uh, I'm not sure what organized crime family he was closest attached to, but I think it was the Gambino family for the most part. But he was a gangster. There was no doubt about that. And he was a dangerous gangster. He also had some schemes going on in Las Vegas. And I went to Las Vegas, and I visited him there in an undercover capacity. And I had uh, was introduced to the owners of the Aladdin Hotel. You know, they were owned by the mob out of Detroit and also out of Kansas City. There was a pension fund, a union pension fund. It was controlled pretty much by organized crime. And I was introduced to the owners of the Aladdin Hotel to see if, you know, if I could help them, you know, save their hotel. But with using Arab money. I was also introduced to the owner of the Circus Circus Casino. 
I was also introduced to the Sands Hotel uh, and the Dunes Hotel. So I spent quite a time there being introduced to casinos who were looking for, for money, you know, anywhere. Arab money, they didn't care where it came from. Now, the Aladdin Hotel, not because of what I did, but it eventually was taken over by the federal government. It was forfeited. But some of these other places, I just didn't, really didn't have the time to explore that. And I couldn't get any, you know, the FBI office in Las, in Las Vegas had no interest in this whatsoever. What it did do is I saw through the other cases, and I would say there's a total of about, out of those five or six or seven cases, there were maybe 35 defendants in all. And I know the Santini case had five people. Uh, they were all convicted. And um, interestingly, the Santini, Santini appealed his uh, conviction to the circuit court. And the circuit court uh, upheld uh, upheld our you know the the conviction, right. and we had a letter from anonymous letter from an an associate of Santini uh, during this time saying that Santini was saying that if he didn't if he didn't uh, win his uh, appeal case that people involved with the prosecution of him were going to were going to be sorry you know, to that effect. So we put that in the letter. Well, uh, after the case was adjudicated and Santini went to jail, um, this was about a year later, the prosecuting attorney, Dwight Green, was the one who prosecuted that case. And he was very aggressive. And he went after Santini and he went after uh, and that guy named Richard Drum, Strom, rather, who was also in, had uh, offered me stolen securities. He went after these guys with a vengeance. Uh, he won the case. He won the appeal. But son, uh, Dwight Green was was brutally murdered in his own house. Um, wow! He, the prosecutor? Yes. Were you able to tie that back to Santini? Uh, no, I had by that time I had been uh, transferred. I'd been promoted down to uh, Shreveport, Louisiana, as the SSRA. So I was down there, <laughs> knee deep in uh, alligators down there too. But to me, it was uh, circumstantial. But we know that plausibly. Santini would have done that, or he had it would have would have had it done if he could. And was the murder ever solved, as far as you know? It was never solved. Nope. So one of the things I'd like to kind of wrap everything up with is your obvious relationship to this day with your informant Mel Weinberg. So right. tell me a little bit more about that. Well, Mel um, Mel is Jewish, and um, I was. Uh, Protestant Baptist from Arkansas. So we had a little bit different backgrounds to start with. When Mel came forward to offer his cooperation, it was really is uh he was motivated by two things. One, to keep his uh, his uh girlfriend uh out of jail, his mistress. He was married but he also had a mistress. And to keep her So that out was of- kind of similar. That was kind of similar to what they showed in the movie. Right, exactly. Yeah, that that did come through. Um, plus, he wanted to keep himself out of jail. So that was his motivation to cooperate. And he met, uh, he had been prosecuted by the by the FBI and U.S. Attorney's Office in Pittsburgh for defrauding a uh, elderly lady um, widow out there. And uh, so he knew he was going to go down for that. He wasn't going to be able to beat it. And so I went out there, and he they had invited Miami, because Mel had done a lot of business in Miami. They invited, I think, five or six other offices that they thought might have an interest. And they all they all shook their head and said, no, they don't want to have anything to do with Mel Weiss. <laughs> they saw him as a greedy, you know, uh, slick, uh, untrustworthy um, con man. So I said, look, he's in my backyard. I'm going to take a chance with him. So that's how that got going. So we had to meet. We had several meetings. Uh, we'd go to lunch out there in Long Island and we'd talk. And so I think he warmed up to me. And over time, uh, we became very close. The bottom line is on that is I trusted Mel back then more than I trusted some of the other people involved in this. So that's how close we were. Wow. Uh, I last saw Mel last, was it last year? I think. Um, Got what day, what month it was myself. I went to well, I introduced him to um, 
the guy that's writing the book. You know, are you familiar with, with what Wedek and Bennett are doing with the book? Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm aware that uh, Wedek and Brennan mm-hmm. are working with writer David Howard. They have a book that's coming out this year called Chasing Phil, and it's all about their escapades with Phil Kitzer and Operation Fountain Pen. And it's option for a film with Warner Brothers that looks like it's actually going to get made. Okay, well, I introduced that writer to Mel because he wanted to talk to him. And we spent we spent three or four days together down there. And we still talk on the phone occasionally. He calls me or I'll call him. He's now around 90, I guess, 91 or 92, but still going. Were you in contact with him throughout the time that he first became your cooperating witness informant in the in the late seventies until present? Yeah. He uh in fact uh he he went to work for Louis Vuitton, you know, after Abscamp. So sometime during the eighties, mid eighties or so he he was hired by Louis Vuitton out of Paris to be their be their, you know, global security guy. So he Oh really? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> they pick yeah. they pick a former conman to be their global security guy. Yeah, and uh, so he came to Dallas back in like like nineteen ninety. Oh, you gotta now you gotta explain that. How, how how did he become a global security expert? Well, I guess Louis Vuitton saw that Mel knew uh, a crook when he when he you know, and that Mel had testified on behalf of the U.S. government to against. Uh, Politicians. I mean, that's a pretty strong statement. You know, it's a pretty strong resume. And I think they, they looked at him as some very powerful individual who's willing to go after anybody. So they also knew that their their losses were mostly um, the people making uh, these, uh, like the Koreans. Knockoffs. Yeah, knockoffs. Yeah, that's what their problem was. So they figured, <laughs> they figured he could handle that, and he did. So he came to Dallas and... You know, my wife had worked for the FBI back uh, back in Chicago, and then she worked for the FBI in, in New York City as well. Then we started having a family, and she never went back. But uh, she had met Mel, and she became very familiar with Mel because Mel, being Jewish, didn't celebrate Christmas, but he always called me on those days. <laughs> so, you know, it was like Christmas Day, and Don says, well, I wonder if Mel will call this year. <laughs> and so... She got to know him, and uh, when he was preparing for testimony against some of the politicians down in Miami, I was asked to go down and spend a couple of weeks with him just to babysit him, you know, to keep him out of trouble. But um, but she went with me, and we, so she knew Mel well, and we'd gone out to dinner with him. So when he came to Dallas, we went out to dinner with him, and he asked Dawn, says, what are you doing? And she said, oh, I'm not doing anything right now. She said, well, would you like a job? And she said, sure. So she became a... An investigator for Mel. <laughs> wow. Uh, she went several places in the United States. She went to Canada. She went to Mexico. She went down to the the, the Caribbean. Uh, she worked for him for a couple of years until, until we got transferred back here to Utah. So that was another way that we stayed in touch with him. And then as time went on, uh, when I was in Hawaii, he would call because he had done some business in Hawaii and he knew he knew the organized crime guy out there. And, Mel is, an, is a never-ending energy. You know, he just goes on and on and on. It's incredible how much energy he had. Did he ever get convicted? Did he ever spend any time in jail? He was convicted in the Pittsburgh case, but because of uh, what he did and my going out to the judge and telling him, look, uh, you know, we would never have been able to make this case you know, without Mel. And so the judge gave him probation. So yeah, he was convicted, but he never went to jail. You know, initially you have this Operation Fountain Pen case with all of these con men and organized crime figures and all of these different spinoff cases. Do you know how many spinoff cases you had in total? I know that we, the five people that helped me put all the cases together for Fred Pro, I know that there was a hundred, well over a hundred, there was a hundred and one <laughs> deals that were prosecutable that he put together. I know that from the Title III, we came up with endless numbers of phone numbers of of individuals, and then we would select, we'd, we'd get the toll records or the call records for selected numbers 
that looked like you know that looked like they were organized crime. So there was no end. There was just endless numbers of phone numbers that we were following. And what happened was when we moved down to just before we moved from the office from Third Avenue and 69th Street down to the Federal Building in Lower Manhattan, they decided that they would create a new squad just for intelligence purposes to create, you know, create to have an intelligence base that would produce cases because what they saw was what we did with with Pro and, and Mel Weinberg that we really didn't, none of these were walk-in complaints. You know, nobody ever come into the FBI and say, hey, I got a complaint against Sam Sonny Santini. That didn't happen. What they saw was the the value of intelligence. And so they set up a squad called it M1, and it's basically surrounded all the things that we had put together with uh, from Oppo Pen to Fred Pro and Abscam and all those spinoff cases. Yeah. It was a wonderful break for me to be where I was at the time in New York. I had become very eager to do something, but I didn't know what it was going to be. But I think John House, my mentor, was he was uh, an attorney and a guy who uh, was very solid, and uh, he he said, you know, these are things that the FBI should be doing, and um, and then looking at what um, what was being done by other agencies, we weren't stepping up, and now we had an opportunity to do that. Uh, the only thing that maybe I would do different is that when we had all of these props that were, you know, just unbelievable successful, you know, these props, this this banking connection, the money, the arrow, you know, we had we had an opportunity to go through any door almost that you could think of, casinos, wherever organized crime existed, we had introductions to get there. So what I would do different, not that it wasn't a good thing before to catch these politicians, you know, with their hands out. But politicians still do the same thing. They just now call it lobbying. (laughs) So we haven't really solved that case. I mean, corruption by way of politicians, I think the corruption is still there. But I think that the impact that we could have made bigger and better would have been following organized crime, you know, through other doors that they they were involved in. That's where I think the impact, a bigger impact, more lasting impact could have been made. Well, in addition to this huge case that has now a place in history, everybody knows about Abscam, and, but from this particular case, I, I know you had other successes and you ended up your career as the special agent in charge of the Honolulu division. Yeah, that was, a, that was a, another, it was, it was kind of crazy how I wound up. I was on the inspection staff. And I was asked to do um, an, an inspection, and an, you know, if you recall, a terrorism issue with the FBI was really didn't get hot until after they attacked. Remember the first time in '93 when they attacked the World Trade Center. Uh, mm-hmm. After that, uh, things started to be a concern about that we may be attacked, you know, by by terrorists from other parts of the world, and they were looking at how well suited are we as a agency to conduct terrorist investigations or carry out in terrorist terror, uh, counterterrorism investigations in other parts of the world. I mean, we really hadn't done it. What we had done in the past, as you know, mostly was the bomb tech guys would go over and do analysis of a bomb that went off in Lebanon or somewhere else or in Saudi Arabia, and then they'd come back home, and that would be kind of the end of it. So they started to look and ask the inspection division to take a look around the world as to what is the capability of the FBI to conduct, to initiate and conduct uh, terrorism investigations out of the parts of the world. Well, I did this for the Asia Pacific. I think there were, at that time, there were seven legal, legal attaches in the embassies in the Asia Pacific from, from Honolulu to Mongolia to India to Australia and back to Honolulu. So like 40, 42 countries that were covered by seven league acts. But what I found was that the league acts, I don't know if you ever served as the league act or not, but the league acts really don't have any authority. And they're limited as to what they can do. They're really there at the, you know, behest of the ambassador. And they depend upon their contact with the local law enforcement and intelligence agencies, sometimes military, to do the work for them. So they really don't have the ability to go out and conduct an investigation. In fact, CIA really discounted the FBI as part of their partnership 
that I ran into, at least in the Asia Pacific, CIA kind of discounted the FBI there as being a partner, and and they refused to cooperate with them. Mm. They would only cooperate with someone from headquarters at the level of of assistant director. Wow. So I went over. I talked to the ambassadors. I talked to CIA. I talked to anybody else I could. I wrote a report, and I come back, and I said, I told Director Free, the FBI does not have the capability to do much with one legal attache, say, say in Hong Kong, who covered also India and Pakistan. I said, there's no, there's just no way that legat has the authority or the time or the capability of doing anything. I said, we need to have a squad that will be operational. So we need an operational squad. And I say, for for the Asia Pacific, I think it should be in Honolulu, not not Seattle, not L.A., not San Francisco, but it should be in Honolulu because Honolulu has all the infrastructure that was set up after World War II to have connections throughout the Asia Pacific. That's, that's where the, you know, the Pacific Command is in Honolulu. You're not, I said, so it all makes sense. So I wrote this report and recommended that's what you do. So he comes back and he says, okay, he says, I agree with that. He said, by the way, the, the SAC spot in Honolulu is going to come open. Would you be interested in that? So I had to think about that. You know, I didn't really think about it. <laughs> so I called my wife and I called another, an agent, uh, SAC, who had been in, who had served in Honolulu. And I asked him about it. And he said, go, just go. Just take my word for it, go. So I did. I went out and uh, I was told by assistant director who at that time covered all the counterterrorism matters. He said, go out there and make friends with everybody <laughs> you can <laughs> as far as you can go. He says, I'll support your travel budget. Just go out there and, you know, put together a program. And if a terrorist event occurs, take your squad, send your squad to it. <clears throat> he said, get it, get it going. Just get start generating some activity. So that was a great opportunity. And that's what we did. Word got around, you know, that the FBI was finally doing something. <clears throat> and they wanted to know what it was that we were doing. And, you know, and but I had to tell them that we're limited. With resources, we can't just have a, a we can't have an FBI agent just for terrorism matters. Then every embassy, it wasn't there. It wasn't going to happen. I spent a lot of time in Pakistan when, you know, they were committing most, nearly all of the terrorist acts against the United States from the early 90s to 2001 to 9/11 were all out of Pakistan. We could see this coming. We could see it brewing. We could we knew it was coming, and I would go back to headquarters and ask for additional help. Uh, it was it was fun. It was interesting, but it was very frustrating. And I have to say, when 9/11 occurred, I had just left the bureau. I was pretty sick about it because I knew I knew that we had missed it. You know that we had missed it again. And that's the end of the interview. As always, back at JerryWilliams.com, you'll find photos of Marvin Fuller an FBI overview, and newspaper articles about the AB scam investigation. If you enjoyed the episode, I hope you share it with your friends, family, and associates. I make it easy for you. At the bottom of this episode's show notes at jerrywilliams.com, you'll find all of the social media share buttons. My crime fiction recommendation for you is Finders Keepers by Stephen King. And no, this is not a horror novel. Stephen King actually wrote a three-book crime novel series. The first book was Mr. Mercedes, which I read before I started this podcast, but I highly recommend that one too. But the one that I read this month, Finders Keepers, was, I thought anyway, even better than Mr. Mercedes. You don't have to read them in order, but you would probably get a better understanding of some of the things that happen in the second book if you read Mr. Mercedes first. Finders Keepers is similar to Misery in that it features a devoted but demented fan of a famous best-selling novelist. But in this case, and I'm not ruining anything because it happens in the very first chapter, the demented fan doesn't just torture and make the novelist's life a living hell. He actually kills the novelist. He is angry 
that the three-part series that the novelist wrote did not end the way that he thought it should. The rest of the book is all about what happens when the fan discovers that the novelist actually did write two more books and everything that he goes through and the people around him go through as he continues his obsession with these unpublished manuscripts, which he is, quote unquote, dying to read. It's an excellent book. I love Stephen King. I love his writing. And the fact that he's now writing crime fiction is fabulous. And so my crime fiction recommendation for this week is Finders Keepers by Stephen King. And while you're checking that book out, please consider checking out Pay to Play by Jerry Williams. I also want to remind you to stop by jerrywilliams.com and sign up for my true crime crime fiction newsletter, which comes out once a month, contains all of the links to the podcast episodes, book recommendations, news articles about the FBI in books, TV, and movies, and other articles featuring the FBI in the news. This episode was sponsored by FBIRetired.com, the only online directory made available to the general public featuring retired FBI agents and analysts interested in showcasing their skills to secure business opportunities. I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you come back again for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.